Before we get started, I wanted to say a quick thank you to the patrons of the podcast, bringing you today's episode. You can find out more about supporting the show at patreon.com slash diapersanddisciples, or check out the link in today's show notes. This is Diapers and Disciples, episode 81. On Diapers and Disciples, we're talking about living out the Great Commission as a mom. I'm Amber O'Hearn, and today is the last episode of season two. I am so excited to be bringing you a chat with author and speaker Laura Finucci. Laura and I chat about her latest book, co-written with her husband, called Grieving Together. Laura shares her own experience of loss, some ways we can respond to friends who have lost a child, and how we can care for kids whose sibling has died. Thanks for listening in today, friends. Here's my chat with Laura. Hi, Laura. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. I'm excited to chat with you. I was wondering if you could start off and just tell us a little bit about you and about your work and your family. Absolutely. Well, I'm a wife and a mom and I'm a writer. I've written several books and I also direct a program on vocation with churches. Um, So kind of wear many hats, but I think that they're all wonderful callings that have really... um, deep in my life as I think God has called me, you know, both to family and to work in the home and work outside of the home. So that's what fills my days. Wow. That's, that's really neat. So what, what does your day-to-day life look like with all those different hats? Oh my goodness. I don't think any day is the same. (laughs) I mean, I often, an ideal day, we could go with that. I love when I get up at, I mean, I'm an early bird, so I could get up at five o'clock. I love to pray in the morning. I love to do some writing, kind of my own creative projects. And then I typically um, work, you know, kind of depends on what the day is like, but I, I am always doing a little bit of work for my professional job during the day. We have four little boys at home, so I'm always kind of wearing the mom hat too. Um, and yeah, so every day looks a little different, but I would say it's always got pieces of you know, marriage and motherhood and parenting and raising a lot of little kids at home. And on, and then also, you know, the, the professional work I do in theology and then work in writing on the side too. So yeah, I'm never bored. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> that sounds great. Um, so do you ever struggle with working from home um, and kind of being able to separate a little bit like home life and work life or does it all kind of flow pretty well? Oh, no, it's a constant (laughs) struggle. I mean, and our kids are, you know, young enough and active enough that I always have, well, most of the time have a babysitter come in um, part time while I'm working. So that's great. Then they can have, you know, someone who's right there playing with them while I'm working and things like that. But the summer is always a very interesting challenge because I mean, I don't have a full time childcare situation. So there's always a little juggling. There's always a little, you know, trying to get work in in the morning or during nap time or after the kids have gone to bed. Right. Um, And I think in my early years as a mom, actually, I know that I struggled with it mightily. Like Mm -hmm. I just felt like I should have it figured out and other moms seem to make things work so seamlessly. But I've kind of come to accept that, you know, doing this work that I love and I feel called to and then you know, wanting also to be at home and be present with my kids. It's just going to be a chaotic life. It'll be this beautiful, creative life too, but it's going to be messy. And 
I'm going to mess up a lot, but you know, I think good things have come out of it, really beautiful things. And I see how God is at work Mm. in all of it. So I just trust that, I don't know, we practice forgiveness a lot around here and I think I'm growing in, (laughs) you know, patience and, and trying to grow in wisdom about, you know, what to let go and what to just say, it's okay. It's good enough. It's not perfect. Mm. Um, yeah, but no, working at home, I think, uh, it's really easy to idealize it. A lot of people think it's the perfect setup and it's great in a lot of ways, but it's hard. It blurs the boundaries because I can very easily, you know, even if the kids are at school, oh, the house is quiet. Like when I'm on a conference call, I could just pop in the laundry or I could fold laundry. And no, no, no. I've learned over the years, it's got to be, you know, I really have to not multitask. Mm. It just goes better if I give my attention fully to whatever the need is before me and just say, nope, I kind of have to pretend like when it's my work time that, you know, the dirty dishes aren't in the sink. I'll just get right. to those later. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. I, I'm glad you shared that because I think it's becoming more common people working from home and my husband works from home. And before we had um, a house, his working space was actually like in the living room when he was just working from home one day a week. And I used to, um, have these moments where I'd be like, oh, I need help with this. I'll just grab Cameron really quick and he can help me with this. But it really breaks off. Like you really need a separate space when you're entering into work and to be kind of removed from uh, from the rest yeah. of house life. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I know it is more common and I think people do make it work in a lot of ways. But for me, actually the same kind of thing, having an office that really is my dedicated space, I think it it just helps a lot. And I think the kids have, I mean, it's lovely that they can, you know, interact with me during the day if it's a day that I'm working and, you know, we, we can share time together, but they also know like if the door is closed and I'm on a call, they know to respect that. And I think, you know, our kids go to a Montessori school and a Montessori environment's a lot about like, what is this space for and Mm. learning to respect that space. And I think, you know, in some ways it's, it, it echoes what they're learning at school, you know, that this is the space where you do your work. And then this is the place where you eat, or this is the space where you play. And I think they've learned to say, okay, that's mom's workspace. And it's, it's right. fun to go in there and ask if I can color with her pens or play with her tape or whatever. But it's also good that they learn. Yeah. We keep toys here and we don't bring all the toys into mom's office. Cause that would make her even crazier. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's great. I love that. Um, Well, Laura, what comes to mind for you when you think about how you live out the Great Commission as a mom? Oh, I loved this question. This was so beautiful because I think um, what this question echoed for me was the idea that actually, you know, as a follower of Christ, I'm not just called to my own children in my home. And I think that's that's a hard thing to realize because our kids, I mean, we love them more than anything, right? We love our family. And we just pour ourselves into them. And rightly so. I mean, that's how, you know, we raise children with love and in faith. But I also think, you know, when we're called to go to all nations and make disciples, when we're really called to be people in the world, engaged with the world, you know, trying to bring the world to Christ, then then actually I'm called to other children outside my home too. And so I think, you know, what is that balance between caring for my own kids, of course, first and foremost, but then also thinking, how am I called to go out from this home and to help them be sent forth too, right? Mm -hmm. Like to help them be formed in faith and to understand that they have 
a calling to go out into the world, to go even beyond their comfort zone, to go where God calls them. So I think it's it's really a beautiful tension and, and a reminder mm-hmm. that we aren't just called kind of to our own people or to create a little bubble from which our kids will never leave, but to be you know parents who are preparing them to go forth into the world to serve Christ, to share their gifts with a world that desperately needs it. Mm. Yeah, it struck me when I was thinking about this question about we often, and I know this quote just really resonated with me as a, as a brand new mom, that quote from St. Teresa of Calcutta about, you know, if you want world peace, you know, what do you do? You go home and love your family. Right. Well, I actually just read this great book by my friend, um, Shannon Evans, this, this book of hers called Embracing Weakness. And in it, she shared that that quote is actually not what Mother Teresa said. So it's a quote from her Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech, I guess. And the actual quote is about, you know, that first you are called within your own home, but then you're also called to your next door neighbor within your your own country. And you're called to go out to all people, to go out to the poor. And I thought, oh, that's a really beautiful part of it that, I mean, I think it resonates deeply with those of us who are raising young kids and the world disdains that a lot of the time, right? We don't get a lot of support for being at home with our kids, for spending time with these little ones. Um, but I love that actually, you know, Mother Teresa was calling us to start there, not to end there, mm-hmm. right? To start there and then go forth. And I think that's been really challenging in a good way and really convicting for me to think about that kind of outward movement that I think Christ is always calling us to. That's so interesting. And, you know, I have never gone back to look at the original, you know, quote from like where she said that her, her acceptance speech. So that is really, really interesting. And I think about like the ways that God provides that it, in, um, like simple ways, like opportunities to do that. For example, we, um, have some neighbor kids down the street who love to come over and um, they're always wanting to play with the kids. They're like, you know, in the age group right above my kids. So, you know, it's it's fun for them to kind of come over and, you know, play cars with them or whatever. And um, oftentimes I feel like, oh, no, sorry, not today, guys, because, you know, I'm busy doing things around the house and we can't have you over to play today. But it struck me the other day that, you know, God is probably providing me with this opportunity to love these neighbor kids that are coming over and I just keep shutting it down. And luckily, uh, our Lord is just like persistent. And so there have been lots of opportunities where I've been able to say now like, okay, yeah, this might not be the best time to have neighbor kids over to play, but you know, it's gonna, it's gonna be great. And, um, a lot of good conversation has come from that. Yeah. So it's been, it's been really, I, I appreciate how God provides ways for us to do that in, in small ways, you know, if we're open to it. So. Yes, absolutely. So Laura, as you mentioned, you've written several books and last year you and your husband released a book, um, called grieving together. And, um, I would love for you to just tell us a little bit about that and kind of what, what brought that about and about maybe your own family's experience with loss. Absolutely. 
Yeah. So this was kind of an adventure to write a book <laughs> with your spouse. Right. We joke that it's our one and only book that we'll write together. <laughs> <laughs> it was really challenging. But um, yeah, so the publisher approached me and asked if I'd be willing with my husband to write a book um, on miscarriage for Catholic couples. Mm. And they felt like there wasn't a really comprehensive companion for people who are going through a miscarriage from the Catholic perspective. So not only to go into like the physical experience of loss, the emotional response that people often have, but really to engage, you know, the spiritual side of losing a child. Um, and we really felt like, wow, this is a calling to write a book together that we would never have expected um, but it really felt like something that God was asking us to do out of the experiences of loss that we've had. So mm. after we were married, we had several years of infertility before we conceived our first child. And, you know, that's its own experience of loss and a really difficult, um, just an absolute experience of suffering in your own limits and powerlessness. And that really was formative for our marriage. Mm -hmm. um, but even after we were able to go on and have children, um, I had a miscarriage after our second son was born. And gosh, I think we foolishly thought, okay, God, we front loaded our suffering on the infertility side, right? Like that was really, really hard, but here we are, we're having kids. And so we were just pretty blindsided by miscarriage. Mm. I didn't really know anyone close to me who had had a miscarriage, or so I thought. Then after yeah. I went through the miscarriage, everyone seemed to come out of the woodwork, and it turned out I knew lots of people who had. Um, but it was a really profound suffering. Even though you know it was in the first trimester, it was early. It was still such a devastating loss to think you know that was that was our baby. That was this beautiful soul that had been given to us by God, and why couldn't that child stay? You know, there just are no easy answers. So, you know, I had written about that a lot on my blog. And um, after the miscarriage, we were able to go on to have another child, which was a huge blessing. And so we had three boys at that point. And then I found out that I was pregnant with twins, actually, which was just kind of a mind-blowing surprise. Um, so we were pregnant with twin daughters, and they were identical. And they actually developed a rare complication for identical twins called twin to twin transfusion syndrome. Hmm. And as a result of that, I had to have surgery um, in utero to try to fix this really complicated situation with the blood flow from the placenta. Wow. And the surgery was unsuccessful. So they actually had to be born by C-section when they were just 24 weeks old. So they oh. were like just at the cusp of viability. And they were both so sick. Some babies who are born that early do survive. And mm -hmm. some twins who have this go on to, you know, live happy, normal lives. But that wasn't the case for our girls. Mm. And so they died at just one and two days old. And, wow. you know, that was that experience of losing a baby after birth was just devastating and something we never thought would happen to us, right? No one ever thinks that's going to happened to them. Um, but by that point, you know, I was a writer and a blogger and I just shared really openly about that experience and wrote a lot about grief and what it was like to lose these babies. And um, I think that by then I had, 
you know, sort of a practice of, of sharing in a vulnerable way, but also kind of tapping into people's own experiences. So Mm -hmm. it was really a blessing to be able to connect with so many other parents who had lost children in really different situations, you know, whether it be miscarriage or stillbirth or, you know, afterbirth or children um, who died in, in childhood. And so um, all of those experiences really changed our marriage, really changed our family and, you know, in some ways brought us closer together and closer to God in ways that we never would have expected or certainly would never mm. have chosen for ourselves, you know. Right. But so we wrote the book out of those experiences. Um, it really focuses on miscarriage simply because it's such a, a much more common experience of loss. Mm-hmm. But um, we did really want to write a book for couples. You know, a lot of the literature and the books on miscarriage are written just for women. And dads grieve too. You know, we, I think we often overlook the father's role because he, he wasn't carrying the baby. Mm-hmm. But yeah. so much of the research on grief, so much of what we went through and what other couples went through, you know, we had... I think 14 or 15 other couples who who we invited to share their stories in the book too. So there'd be a lot of different voices about different experiences of loss. And all of those stories really reflected how complicated a father's grief is because, you know, as a society, we just, we, we don't really like when men grieve. We don't give them an outlet for grief. And so we really wanted to show fathers that it was normal and okay to grieve and that there were ways that, you know, couples could try to support each other in their grief um, so that they might even grow closer together and not necessarily farther apart in their grief. So that's what we hoped to do with Grieving Together. And it's been really beautiful, you know, to launch that into the world and see how there really was a need for that for Mm. men and for women. Mm. That's great. And I, I thank you so much for sharing that and for, for sharing your story too. And um, even now as you're sharing, like my my tendency, I think my first response to, to hearing a story of loss is just to say, you know, I'm so sorry. And um, I wonder though, like, is that the the right response or is that even, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm nervous yeah. that I like say the wrong things or do you feel like there there are certain ways that we can, I guess maybe how I should ask it is, how should we respond to friends who have recently lost a child? That's such a great question. And honestly, I still get anxious about this too. So I think people think I'm an expert on this by now, but I'm still like everyone else in the receiving line, like at the wake or the funeral, you're sitting there like, what do I say? What do I say? Because really words do fail us. Mm -hmm. I mean, they just fail in the face of death and loss. And I think it's okay to say that. It's even okay to just kind of stumble around and say, I don't really know what to say. Because frankly, the person you're saying it to doesn't really know what to say either. And Mm -hmm. they've never been here. But you know what? I think your instinct is spot on. And that's where I always start too. I always just say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Because just to name the depth of that loss, to join someone in their grief, just to affirm this is a huge loss. You know, even if your friend, say, miscarries a baby really early on by saying, I'm so sorry for your loss, affirms for them that that was a baby, right? That Mm -hmm. that was not just like this medical thing that happened that was the loss of a child. And I think it's so important to affirm that. Mm -hmm. So my default is always, I'm so sorry. 
I love you. I'm here for you. And you and your baby won't be forgotten. Mm. So I always think those are the four kind of movements I always go to. I always start with, I'm sorry. I always just kind of lead with that. I love you. I'm here to listen. I can't fix this. I'm not going to try to tell you, you know, I think people often try to minimize grief and you'll do the, well, at least, you know, at least it Mm. was still early or at least you can have another, or at least you got pregnant, but really none of those things are helpful. So I just try to set aside those at least, and they come, they arise very naturally for all of us, Mm. but to just set it aside and say, I love you. I'm here for you. I think, um, I also try to follow up the I'm here for you with here's the concrete thing I'm going to do to be here for you. Because again, I think sometimes we say, you know, I'm here for you. Let me know if you need anything. Yeah. (laughs) But the person who's grieving, like they have that fog of grief brain. They can't even like remember to, you know, take a shower in the morning or like brush their teeth. They're just kind of on another planet. So expecting someone who's grieving to be able to say, you know what? I do need something. Could you do X, Y, or Z? It just doesn't happen usually. So I always think like, you know, I'm here for you. I'm just going to bring you dinner tonight and drop it off. You don't even have to say hi. It's just going to be on your doorstep. I'll text you when I leave. Hmm. Or, you know, getting groceries or offering to babysit if they have other kids. You know, just a concrete way that's like, I'm going to lead with it. I'm going to offer. I want to be there for you. And then I think the last thing, you know, to say that you and your baby won't be forgotten, I think that's one of the biggest fears that parents have after they lose a baby because that life was so, you know, young and short by the world standards that they do have this deep fear that people won't remember their child, you know, that they'll pretend like that baby never existed. So I think actually this is one of those places where the smartphone can be used for good because I think, you know, to put a reminder in your phone on that day when your friend has, has gone through that terrible loss and, you know, to check in with them in a week or in a month to check in with them each year on that date, like Mm. just to say, I'm thinking of you today. I know today is probably hard. You're probably feeling kind of tender. I just want you to know, I love you. Like that will mean the world to them. And I'm amazed. I mean, my friends taught me this. I did not come up with this on my own. I had friends who would just show up so faithfully, who would text me literally every month on the day that the girls were born and just say, I'm thinking of you. I know it's a hard day each month. And I thought, wow, what a faithful friend. Like Mm. what a beautiful act of service to care for the grieving. So yeah, those are my defaults. You know, I, I'm sorry. I love you. I'm here for you. And you and your baby won't be forgotten. Mm. I love that so much. I, I especially love, um, you know, the reminder because that's something I never would have thought of. And and you're right. When someone remembers something like that, it really touches you. Um, you know, oh, yeah. how how thoughtful that a friend, you know, is thinking of me, praying for me, you know, on this particular day. Um, so I, I really love that suggestion. Um and I think so often, like in the medical field, especially for like early miscarriages, there is a tendency to kind of downplay it or to say like some of those at least things that you were talking about when we go yeah. in to see a doctor. Yeah. So I, I love I love those four parts that you mentioned because I think 
even if a friend of ours is going through that and even experiencing some of, you know, not the best uh, care from the medical field, at least like when they come home to their friends and family, there's some of that acknowledgement that yes, this was a child and this is a loss that you're going through. So um, I, I really appreciate those those tips. Yeah. Well, I think it's one of those times too that we get to affirm what it means to be pro-life, you know, mm. to believe that life is sacred from the moment yes. it sparks into being, you know, and to say, yeah, the medical profession is going to treat it this way, but we see this deeper, fuller truth, you know, we know that this baby's life will never be forgotten, had a purpose by God. We don't understand the mystery of why, you know, this baby didn't get to live a full life, but we know that there's more. And we know that we pray that, we'll, you know, you'll get to be with your baby again in heaven. That's our greatest hope. So yeah, I think it's a beautiful way that we really get to say, this is what it means, you know, to live out those beliefs. Mm, yeah, that's so great. So then on the, on the same note, um, for children then, um, maybe we ourselves have had a loss and there are other uh, brothers and sisters of this child or children in other families where a loss has occurred. What are what are some things that we can say or do for our children? I think first and foremost, just to talk about it, which sounds so simple, but you know, in generations past, that didn't happen. And I think even now, you know, I'll, I remember after we had our miscarriage, there were older members of both sides of our families that came forward and told us stories about babies they'd lost. And I thought, wow, they just didn't talk about any of this back then, you know? And so I think, I think that that was done, you know, with the best intentions thinking, well, it would be too hard on the kids or it's not appropriate for children to know. But I've actually seen, I mean, with our own kids and talking to, to them about our losses and then in so many other families too, I see that children are much more open and receptive and really kind of understanding of these things than we sometimes think. I mean, like I, I think our kids have are, are have much more ease and comfort to just talk in public about mm -hmm. the sisters they have who are dead, who are in heaven, or the baby mm -hmm. that was miscarried, you know, that, that they're going to have these siblings in heaven. And won't that be amazing? And I think, you know, just being open with them, it can be scary. It can feel like, oh, like, should I tell them this? And of course, children, you know, respond and, and may be very sad and may need to talk that through a lot. But ultimately, I think the greater good of being honest with kids and sharing with them, you know, at their level, certainly making it appropriate and not scary or, you know, overly dark. But I think that children are able to accept death as part of life in ways that often the adults think they can't. Like mm -hmm. we bring our own fear and our anxieties to it. Um, but I think meeting kids at their level, you know, just answering their questions really simply and not, not feeling like you have to explain everything about death and how babies are made and where we go when we die. Like just kind of taking each question as it goes and really explaining, you know, simply, um, I think that is is really wonderful for kids. And I think that ultimately it can be healing for them, you know, to get to say a prayer to this little saint, right? To say mm -hmm. that this is a special person in our family who's praying for our family and will always be with us in spirit and that love never dies. You know, I think um, the kids are able to take that in. And, you know, I, I will also say like, 
sometimes, especially with, um, say, a stillbirth or infant loss, I think that, that, you know, sometimes that is a really traumatic loss for all the members of the family, for the siblings, for everyone. And I am certainly a really big proponent of, you know, getting professional help when you need. And I think Mm -hmm. the research has shown that even young kids in a family unit can be really affected by what is happening, even beyond their kind of comprehension level or ability to talk about it. And so I think if it seems like your child is really struggling or they're regressing in their behavior or getting really angry, you know, to sit down with a child's counselor and to talk with them can be so valuable and can really give you the tools as a parent to say, yeah, here's how we can get through this. And here's how I can help my child to deal with this. So I'm a big fan of all of those approaches, you know, mm-hmm. whatever your child needs, I think. And and thinking about like, for those of us maybe who are pregnant right now and a friend loses a child or isn't even able to conceive, which you mentioned, you know, is a type of loss in a sense as well. Is there a way that we can be like more sensitive to that. And even around, I was thinking about like Mother's Day or, you know, holidays like that. Are there ways that we can be sensitive in what we say for people who have lost a child? Absolutely. And I think that's such a beautiful, loving impulse um, because holidays are really hard. You know, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Christmas even, you know, you think, hey, we were supposed to have this baby on Christmas, opening up presents and all of that. So I think you know, going back to what you can do and say right after someone has a loss, I think reaching out to them again on those hard days is such a beautiful um, act of friendship, you know, and text is great for this or email because it gives somebody a chance to respond on their own terms, which is Mm -hmm. great because sometimes someone might want to talk about things in their grief or be really open about it. And other times it's just so hard they don't want to go there. So I think just sending the text that says, I love you. I'm thinking of you today. It just, you're not forgotten. So I think that's a really wonderful way to be sensitive to, to a friend who has lost a baby when you're in a really different situation. And I also think, you know, being compassionate and understanding when someone needs to say, decline the baby shower invitation, yeah, right? Or not to the family party if there's tons of little kids and they've just lost a baby. I think just just giving people the time and space to grieve and to not expect them to kind of show up for life as normal, you know, even into the next year to just say, it's okay. If you don't want to come, that's that's fine. Just know we love you. We'd love to see you whenever is good for you. But um, it can still feel really raw. And I think I really appreciated, you know, friends who would reach out, say, and text or email me privately to let me know that they were pregnant before I saw the big surprise on Facebook or something Mm. like that. And that was so nice because being blindsided by those is just awful because you feel like you have to respond like a normal person and all you want to do is go in the bathroom and cry. So the friends that would just sort of let you know just delicately on, you know, your own time and in your own space, that way, even if it was hard or I was sad or jealous, I could sort of have that reaction on my own and then be able to come back and say, oh, thanks for letting me know. I'm really happy for you. You know, and I could genuinely mean that versus having to on in the moment and say it to their face. Yeah, that, that's really helpful. That's good to remember. Um, and Laura, for, for those who are listening today who, I mean, this is probably really resonating them if they've recently had a loss, um, what would you want to say to them? 
I think the thing I, I always want to say first and foremost is just that you aren't alone because I think that's the lie of suffering is that it makes us think we're alone. We're forgotten. It's never going to get any better than this. You know, there's no light or hope. And I think to know that actually there are so many people who have gone through this and it's not to minimize what you're feeling. It's not to say, Hey, it's super common. So you should be fine. It's to say that there's this deep, almost like sister and brotherhood of parents who've gone through this, who understand in a flash, like if you share that moment of loss, they just understand that gut level, like, Oh no, I get it. Like we lost a baby too. And I think that's amazing to know. And I think that, I mean, the other part of suffering that's just so hard to bear is that you, it's it's really difficult sometimes to know where God is in that. And we have so many questions for God and and maybe we're sad or we're misunderstanding or maybe we're furious and we are just so angry at God and we can't understand why God let this happen. And I think I, I always want to tell people that even when God doesn't feel present, that God is present. And even when you can't feel that or believe that, that that's when the rest of us as the body of Christ are just going to hold that as truth for you. Like knowing that God is still present to you and surrounding you with love. And so I just think, you know, knowing that in some ways we're, we're always grieving together as the body of Christ. There's this unity mm. That can be really hard for us to see, but it's just there and, and it lasts, it lasts longer than those awful, you know, first days and weeks and months of grief where it just feels like, you know, you're alone and you'll never be a normal person again and no one understands. But eventually over time you come to see that, wow, there's a lot of people whose families don't look like they expected or whose lives have a lot more brokenness than it looks like on the surface. And so knowing that we're together in that, I think, has been a huge source of hope and comfort for me. Mm. Yeah, that's so good. Um, and Laura, when you look at your life um, over the last year, how would you say you've seen the Lord at work? Oh, that's such a good question. I feel like we could chat about that for an hour, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I think I've seen in really beautiful ways how God brings life out of death. You know, I think being able to to write this book and to share it with others out of our own, like the depths of our grief, it's not to say, I think there's a lot of easy, you know, kind of bright siding or sadness that people want to do like, oh, well, that's why that happened. So you could learn that or so you could tell other people. And I, act, I think life and, and death and suffering are so much more complicated than that. We I can't say that any of the good that has come out of our daughter's deaths makes it okay or like makes me accept it or embrace it. I mean, I still struggle with it so much, but I think that I'm amazed to see that out of what looks like the end, God brings about new life. And and in small ways and big ways, I mean, it's not just out of this huge, you know, grief that we went through, but just that's the pattern of how God works, you know, like that that pattern of resurrection of dying and rising is the pattern of, you know, our whole Christian life. And so mm. to, sometimes to see it in the big ways, we start to realize, 
oh yeah, you know those terrible days you have as a mom where by like 9.30, you're just done. You're like, yeah. I don't know how we're going to get through the day, guys. But then there's like this beautiful moment of grace somewhere where a kid just says something beautiful or you're like, yeah. oh, I just love you. Like, look at you playing in the sun <laughs> for a minute, not hitting your brother. Like, this is such a good life. And then you realize, oh yeah, die to self, rise again. Like, this right. is what we're doing all along. Mm. Yeah. I love that so much. That's great. And what would you say is your favorite part of your home and why? Oh, I loved this question too. This was such a fun one to think about. <laughs> it's well, one of my actually, favorites to ask. So. Yeah, <laughs> it's a really good question. We don't think about that enough, I think. I actually think where I'm sitting right now up mm. in our bedroom is my favorite place because it's like, you know, the kitchen is is the heart of the home. But I also think like this room that's all about our marriage and where our kids like climb into bed with us mm. and slept right next to us when they were babies like it's about our parenting too and I have this favorite old chair in the corner that was it belonged to one of my grandmas it was in her guest room and so we always used to get to sit in it when we went there and it's my favorite little spot to pray and to journal and I feel like whenever that chair is actually clear and I do sit in it every night and pray and journal like that's the times when life is coming along and things are going well. And of course I don't do it every night and stuff piles up in it. And I'm like, Oh, I haven't <laughs> journaled in, you know, like weeks, but I think there's just, it's another heart of our home. I think in this room that, you know, that's a chair where I love to, it's big enough that I can sit there with a kid and read a book. And it's also just comfy enough to sit and write. And I think, yeah, this is just the coziest little corner of our mm. room of our house. Mm. Yeah. I love that. Um, that reminded me of something. What was it? Oh, um, I wanted to ask you, uh, you, you mentioned journaling as a writer. Do you feel like, um, your journaling ends up turning kind of into your work or is there kind of a separation there where your journaling, journaling is really just for you? Oh, that's a good question. Journaling is definitely mostly for me. I mean, I think that's kind of where I just get it all out. And I don't care if I'm saying it in a way that sounds good or looks nice right. on the page. A lot of times it just turns into prayer. So when I'll flip back through mm. my journals, I'm like, oh, I just wrote that whole page to God. Like that just turned into a prayer because what I was trying to figure out or sort through from the day, you know, I just sort of turned that into prayer. And so I just let that be a space where I don't worry about what I say and just kind of pour it all out. And sometimes mm. I'll stumble on an idea and I'm like, oh, there's something there, but I always right. pull it out of there and then kind of write it in a different place. Cause I think it's sort of nice to just have that private sacred space, especially as someone who writes a lot of stuff on the internet. It's so good to have those corners of your life and your heart that nobody else sees. You really hmm. need that. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I always wondered about that. Very neat. Um, and then, uh, my last question for you is, do you have any, Oh, I don't know if I asked you what you're loving. What are you loving recently? Oh, I am loving summer, despite the fact mm. that our air conditioning died and we've been <laughs> in like 90 degree heat and humidity all week. I do love summer. It's my favorite season. I love the light, actually. I mean, I really oh, like the warmth, yeah. but I love, I mean, up in Minnesota where I live, you know, in the winter, it is dark by like 4 p.m. and as someone who loves light, I really struggle with the winter. So this time of year when it's like, I mean, I can wake up at five and it's like the sun is up, the birds are chirping, like the world mm -hmm. is ready to go. And I just have a ton of energy in the summer, which I love. So yeah, and I love, I mean, as crazy as it is to have 
all the boys home from school in the summer. I do love that just slower schedule we have and just going to the park and going to get ice cream. And it's just such a sweet uh, like season and it's so short. So I always think yeah. let's, let's just do it up well. Let's do that. That's great. I love that. And uh, do you have any mom hacks to share or something that's making your life a little easier? Okay. My number one mom hack is that it's never too early to start dinner. Oh, that's Someone great. Told- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Someone told me that when I think, I don't know, I'd been a mom for like a year or two and it was like a light bulb went off. Like, oh, that's why the evening is always insane when I'm trying to figure out what to eat and cook it while like everyone is at their worst energy of the day. Yeah. So I always think, yeah, it is never too early to start dinner. If you are making breakfast and the kids are quiet and it's like, oh, I know what we could have for dinner tonight. Just start it then. No one has ever regretted yeah. making dinner early. <laughs> That's so great. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Even just uh, before before we jumped on to chat, um, my husband was doing a little, little bit of work. So I was in the kitchen. And I was like, I'm just going to chop up the vegetables just to get things prepped and ready to go. So yeah, yeah. even like you said, at breakfast time, just getting things chopped and Ready to... You just never know what the day will bring, too. Exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's that's so true. Well, Laura, thank you so much for being on today. And um, could you tell us, your blog is Mothering Spirit, correct? Yes, motheringspirit.com. And you can find out about my books there, about grieving together, a couple's journey through miscarriage. And I also wrote a book um, kind of about my years as a new mom that's called Everyday Sacrament, The Messy Grace of Parenting. And so a lot of that learning to live in the mess and learning to find God in the crazy chaos, that's where I tucked all those stories. So Mm. you can find out about all of that on motheringspirit.com. Great. I love that. And I'll add that to my read list because that sounds great (laughs) because I am in that stage of chaos and mess. So. Oh, amen. I hear you. That's great. (laughs) Well, um, thanks again. And let me go ahead and and close this in a prayer. Lord, thank you for the gift of this day and the gift of our children. We pray in a special way today for those family and friends and those listening who have lost a child. And Jesus, we just ask you to be with them and to surround them with the love and support they need. Um, and the knowledge that they're not alone. And we love you, Lord, and we make this prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hi, friends. I learned and received so much from what Laura shared today. I hope our chat connected with you as well. You can visit the show notes at diapersanddisciples.com for links to everything we talked about, including the link to Mother Teresa's Nobel Prize acceptance speech, which I immediately looked up after this chat and was really impacted by her actual words and encouragement at the end. As I mentioned at the beginning, this episode will conclude season two of the podcast. I'm taking September off to get into the swing of homeschooling and to prep for season three coming in October. I have an exciting surprise planned for the next season, so make sure you're subscribed so you know when that releases. I'll also, of course, share on Facebook and Instagram at Diapers and Disciples. And patrons, you already know what's coming, but I'll be sharing the concrete plan for season three this month over on Patreon. Thanks again for listening in today, friends. 
so grateful for each of you. And until next time, you all are in my prayers. God bless.